Hello and welcome to the third series of the Igniting Change podcast. It's a different and more challenging world in which we find ourselves this time around, so we wanted to reflect the challenges of just surviving in the COVID-19 era and what the Black Lives Matter movement has meant to some of our First Nations people. Igniting Change hasn't stopped working to make this period easier for those doing it tough, nor will it. Yes, we're all in this together, but for some, making it to the other side is just the start of the battle. I'm delighted to welcome back Jane Tewson, the founder and director of Igniting Change, and Martin Flanagan, writer, journalist, and the author of a new book about Jane and Igniting Change called The Art of Pollination. Martin, just first of all, congratulations on the book. And it's a little bit different from your normal subject matter. How did you come to to write this book? Well, my whole writing life has really been about writing about people. I love sport, but sport is such an amazing way to connect to people and to vault all sorts of social inhibitions. And um, as a journalist, you go places and they don't want to know you and don't want to talk to you. But if you can talk sport, you're in. And that includes an Aboriginal community. So sport was just always a way for me to connect with people. The great thing about journalism is that it makes you meet people you'd otherwise meet and go places you'd never otherwise go. I loved that about it. I've always loved characters. If the things people are capable of doing causes me to despair, the thing that's always given me hope is people. I've met a lot of great people in my life and um, Jane's one of them. So that was really how it happened. How did you go talking sport to Jane? Well, the first thing I noticed about Jane is that um, she's not snobbish about sport. A lot of people who consider themselves left-wing, if you start talking about sport, all sorts of snobberies come out to do with class, to do with gender, and she didn't have any of them. And that's one of the things I really liked about her was that she has no snobbery. And I think that's also part of the reason that she's able to connect with people of different genders and different races and different cultures. She would describe herself as ordinary, but her ordinariness has a universality about it, which is sort of what the Buddhists say about ordinariness. We just got on because we had certain basic values the same. That lack of snobbery was what I really got about her. But she was good at sport and she was a good hurdler. And (laughs) she said in the book, when I was good, I flew. I think she's still pretty good at going over hurdles. Yeah, I think she is too. I th- actually, I thought it had a metaphorical ring to it. But there must have been a catalyst, if you like, that ignited your interest. Could you pinpoint what it was with Jane? Well, my wife's family are tough people. They are not easily impressed. And my wife, Polly, came home one day and said she'd met an interesting woman. That was interesting in itself. And she just met Jane and she told me a few things. And then I had this very big experience in the early 2000s in South Africa. I got confronted with the issue of torture. It was a major episode in my adult life. It took me some years to work my way through it. And I gave a speech at the Centre for the Survivors of Torture in Northcote. And there was this woman in the front row taking notes. And Polly, my wife, said to me, that's her, that's Jane Tewson. I met Jane and her husband, Charles, after it. My first impression of Jane was just this friendly presence, which is 
how I would describe her now after the two and a half years we've worked together. That's, that is what and who she is. It's pretty much what everyone says about Jane, that she's a, a friendly presence. Pretty much everyone that you speak to in the book, it's a universal claim. She's genuine. She's fresh. There's a freshness about her. So every time she rings you, there's a freshness about her, a friendly freshness. And you know with Jane that you're only one of many. She's always got a lot of balls in the air. But when she gives you time, she really gives you time. And once you're in her orbit, she's there for you. And, and you embedded, basically, with Igniting Change for a year, Martin. What was that like? It was one year. It could have gone on for 20. <laughs> <laughs> As I said earlier, the great thing about journalism is it makes you meet people you'd never otherwise meet and go places you'd never otherwise go. Well, that was the same thing with Joan. She, she took me places. She introduced me to people and she took me to stories that mattered and you know that's what I get my kick out of as a writer is telling stories that I think matter. Jane I'm just going to introduce you now what was it like for you to be followed I guess by by Martin for a year? Oh I had a new best friend it was great in many ways (laughs) it was lovely sharing the stories of the extraordinary people that I get to work with if this book can you know, excite, inspire some different kind of conversations. That will be wonderful. Martin, what would have been your favourite story from the book? I have a favourite story to do with Jane and I have a favourite story to do with all the other people. I'm talking about Margaret from Sacred Heart. Yeah, beautiful Margaret. Margaret Thorpe. I met her at an earlier function that Jane ran for a book, the uh, South Sudanese. Oh, yes. And I was just immediately taken with her. I mean, there's just this sort of elemental honesty about her we just immediately sort of connected she grew up in what was then Rhodesia she was a nurse she saw the civil war firsthand working in hospitals and she saw the tragedy of it from both sides that had a huge effect upon her and it was sort of like a a soul sickness for her and she came to Australia and she did lots of interesting things she worked in remote Aboriginal communities but when I met her she was running a Centre at the Sacred Heart Mission in in St Kilda. And it's um, a place where she takes in homeless, mentally ill people. She takes them in on this understanding that if they wish, they can stay there for the rest of their lives. And they will be part of a community. And when when they, if they, if and when they die, their names will be recorded on the wall. This will have been a place where they mattered. I remember her saying, we, were, we did this tour this day, and at the end of it, she said, this could be an unhappy place. But listen, can you hear any unhappiness? And there was this beautiful, calm, tranquil place. Yeah. And then she told the story about a fellow who came, and he'd been in prison. And I think he had a tattooed face, and he was fierce, and people were scared of him. And one day he came to her, and he'd been to a market in St Kilda, and he'd bought this little sculpture. I think it was of an owl. He gave it to her. He said, here's something I'd like you to have. And she took it and he said, I think it's beautiful. So he was this man everyone was scared of that, you know, sort of like a mad dog that might bite them and, in fact, had this perception of beauty and he wanted to make that gift to her. To me, that's a really beautiful, wonderful, important story. And so unexpected too from that place. That's what makes yeah. it such a great yeah. story. And your Jane story. So you want me to tell you of course. my favourite Jane story? When I try and explain Jane to people, which isn't easy, and given that she doesn't like any of the words that people use to describe her, I find the easiest way to describe her is to explain how she got started. 
in doing what she does. I hope I get this all correct, Joan, because it's your story. As I have heard it, her parents were both really remarkable people, really interesting people. Her father um, had been at Cambridge during the 30s, which is probably the most tumultuous decade in that university's life, long and eventful life. He'd become a pacifist uh, and a conscientious objector. And then when Hitler posed his threat to civilised values throughout Europe, he uh, joined up as someone who uh, diffused bombs, unexploded devices, enormously dangerous work. And eventually he was blown up and he won a George Cross. So he was a very brave man and Jane's very brave. And her mother was a fascinating woman, a, a, a maverick who'd gone her own way from an early age, had a lot of time, had spent a lot of time with the local gypsies, became a doctor. Both her mother and father were doctors. So Jane wants to be a doctor, doesn't do well at school because of dyslexia, goes to London to work for a major charity that is dealing, helps kids with, with intellectual disabilities. She learns that 90% of the money being raised by the charity is in fact being spent on itself and that no one around her in this office actually has anything to do with kids. So she comes up with a completely different idea of how to do charity. And she goes to this major figure in the, in the business stroke political world and puts her idea, he's a man not known for a heart, but Jane has a way with people and um, he backs her. And so then she needs an idea and she meets a journalist in a pub and the journalist is from the Sunday Times and he's written a column saying that the Edinburgh Festival has outgrown Edinburgh. It might as well be in Netherwatt, a village of 500 in Hampshire. And Jane says, let's do it. And he says, what? And she says, let's hold the first Netherwallop International Arts Festival. So they then contact 200 of the leading people in British entertainment and show business. 40 or 50 of them agree to come. Peter Cook, Gore Vidal, Rowan Atkinson, the young ones, Bill Wyman from the Rolling Stones. She gets this amazing collection of people. And before this weekend happens, she goes to London Weekend Television and sells the rights, the documentary rights, for a five-figure sum. That's a great success. But it means she's also connected in at the cutting edge of British comedy. And so when the famine in East Africa happens that leaves Bob Geldof to do Band-Aid, the comedians want to do something. So Jane goes to South Sudan, having previously been declared dead there in a refugee camp from cerebral malaria a few months earlier, and she launches Comic Relief. And Comic Relief is now the biggest charity in Britain. I think it had raised £1 billion by 2015. And along the way, has come up with these amazing ideas like Red Nose Day. So that story gives you an idea of her, res her resourcefulness, her wit, her courage, her enthusiasm, and she has continued with that method though on a smaller scale ever since. And that's one of the things that makes her interesting to me is that she's a person who goes around doing good. A lot of people want to do good but don't know how, whereas she created this utterly original method which has now stood the test of time. It's been working for 40 years. Quite the story. Jane, when you hear that relayed back to you, can you believe what you did or, or did it at the time feel like you were just getting on and doing something? It definitely felt like I was getting on and doing something, but it's all about teams. Everything that I've ever worked on, everything I'm working on now is about the people you've got around you. So Comet Relief was not just me. I had some ideas, but, you know, the power of British comedians, Richard Curtis and others was extraordinary. You don't much like, I notice in the book, talking about the past, talking about the things that you've done. Why is that? Because I love the here and now. Yeah, I just love the here and now and 
the life I'm leading and I find it really interesting. Since you've arrived in Australia, I think you've managed to pretty well stay under the radar. Now with Martin's book, people are going to know your name. What does that feel like for you? If we can ignite some conversations that wouldn't normally happen, then I'll be really happy. If we can share the stories of Margaret, of Emmanuel Jow, of Con at the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre, then and if we can share conversations about philanthropy, about philanthropy that might be a little bit different, a bit more quirky, then I'll be very happy. Can you give us the basics in the Jane Tewson way? There's some things that you do. You do it just naturally. I think work with people. Don't give to them. I think to be curious. I think to always involve the people that you want to support in all aspects of your organisation. Really important to have fun. And Marty, thank you, because I had a lot of fun with you over the year. I really had some great times. I think money alone we know isn't enough. Money is not going to change things. We need to increase awareness. We need to share stories. The reason why, what the way your method works is you believe, you really believe in transparency. Anyone who comes into one of your projects, everyone knows exactly where they stand in it. There's nothing, there's nothing hidden. I think we all have an inbuilt filter about how we're going to approach this person or that person. But I watch you and you don't seem to have that filter. You just approach everyone in exactly the same way. Is that something that you learnt from your mum? I suppose I grew up with difference all around us and see the person, don't see their label. We're all made of water. That idea that any of us is any better than anyone else just is baffles me. Mm. Absolutely baffles me. So I love people. What do you do when there's a setback? Oh, just fall down, have shed a few tears and bounce back up again. We're in for the long term. There are setbacks and you know they're going to be in our, our work. But once we're in, we're in. We don't walk away. I don't believe in only giving people one chance. You've got to give people lots of chances. Just wondering, Martin, what are some of the things that you might have adopted in your life as a consequence of spending time with Jane and igniting change? Well, I love her guts. I love her courage. She's got a bit of what London had during the Blitz about her. I had, I had actually had that in the book at one time, but that's what I love. She's, um, you know, Gandhi said, if you do the right thing for the right reason, you'll generally be protected. Jane does the right thing for the right reason. That's why people can't say no to us, <laughs> me included. In your life now, what are the things that you are going to do as a consequence of spending time with Jane and Igniting Change? What are some of the habits that you might have picked up along the way? Jane's way of working and my way of working weren't that far apart because we both have a huge belief in stories, in the power of stories. I've always known when I'm in the vicinity of a story because there's a certain energy and I feel the energy and I just think I can write about this. From the time I met Jane, I knew I could do something and we both sort of knew, but it was never going to happen because Jane was never going to... If I said to Jane, I'd like to write something on you, she would have said no. And in the end, it was Jane, Jane's offsider, who said, let's start, you know, let's do a book. And then we just worked it out from there. Because as books go, this is my 20th book, the only one that has been as unusual <laughs> was the one I did with the great Essendon Aboriginal footballer Michael Long. And that took me 13 years because Michael Long had never read a book until he read mine, but he'd never read a book and he saw no cultural value in them. So that took 13 years. This is a doddle by comparison, just one year. It was equally different from the norm, but in completely different ways because once you enter that arrangement with Jane, you've got to be happy, I've got to be happy. For Jane to be happy, everyone connected with Igniting Change has to be happy. <laughs>
I end up dealing with this huge chorus. Like, I'd agree to ring up and read something to Jane, which for a writer is a big thing to do to let someone else into the cockpit of the plane. And you'd ring up and Jane and go, right, everyone's here now. You're <laughs> <laughs> not reading to Bay 13 at the MCG, and then they all get to have their say. So the process never ends. What do you think about the book? And what do you hope to achieve with it? I love reading the book, but not the bits about me. And it's a it's a real privilege having some of that background for my children. But I find reading anything about myself or looking at a photograph is so hard. But I get so excited when I read about Children's Ground and we're hearing from William Tilmoth, who I think is an absolute legend, and other people that are featured in the book. So I... I love it. I love Marty's writing. He captures, you know, I love the spirit. I love the way that you wrote about us going to the police academy. I still giggle every time I read that, Martin, because you're quite right. I didn't, I was going up the wrong way. I parked in the police commissioner's spot. <laughs> I, I don't know what was I going on. Better, I think you better shift. Where the police commissioners can't. <laughs> when people tell, tell me I can't do something, that makes me want to do it. <laughs> I didn't see the sign, but I do like I do like disobeying, as you know. One of the great mysteries for me, Jane, is someone who's written on Aboriginal stuff for thirty odd years, and has written books on this theme of, you know, how do we belong to Australia? You go to Aboriginal Australia with Jane; she's she belongs there. She's mm. not. She's not. You know, she's English. She didn't come to Australia till what? You're in your forties, Jane. Oh, that's a beautiful compliment, Marty. I love the idea that I might belong with my feet in the dirt. Another thing about the book, which is important to me, it was written against a background of the enormous social and political upheaval in the United States with Trump and that coming into Australia, enormous challenges to our social order, to rule of law, to human rights. This is all going on in the background. Halfway through the writing of the book, my 10-year-old granddaughter just surprised me one day. She said, I read one of your books, which really amazed me. I didn't ever expect her to read one of my books. And for me, you know, at the end of the day, I wrote it for my granddaughter. We now have this tremendous problem with our young people in this culture have got anxiety and they've got every reason to have anxiety because they look at the elders and they're entitled to ask, do they know what they're doing? I mean, what are they doing? That's why I said in the dedication to the book um to my granddaughter i said you know i wanted to know there is an obstinate force for good in the world that's what i wanted her to know but that's what i hope the book does i hope the book people read the book and feel they've had some solid fare they've had a good meal something mm. goes in as as opposed to the bad news on the television coming through the news every night that's true and we also now have a new acronym for jane chusen the ofg the obstinate force for good thank you martin <laughs> Marty, i want to say thank you but also earlier today i was reading one of the quotes from emmanuel and he says and i really think this is right a lot of australians don't know what is happening in australia they're immune to the very land that is blessing them and that is, yep. that's that, quite true. That's quite true. Thank you both for... It was a lot of fun, Marty. When are we doing the second second book? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> when are we doing the sequel? I'm 65, mate. I won't live to be 130. <laughs> the real book. The, the real book. She the edits. He keeps saying this, that there's oh, another no. story. There's it's another outrageous. story she's yet to tell. Oh, <laughs> What's on the edit? Thank you, Celia. Thank you. Pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Without you. 
No, uh, that's right. She's a trooper. I'm working with the OFG, and that's that's good enough for me. Martin, thank you. Take Thanks, care. Thanks, Marty. Later. Bye. That's it for this Igniting Change podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to press subscribe to ensure you don't miss future episodes. Thanks for listening, and remember, see the person, not the label. Oh,